Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 30, which is sponsored by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. This holiday season, give someone a Drobo to keep all their files and memories safe forever. And keep listening for how you can save a whole lot on your next purchase of a Drobo product. This is a limited time offer, and I'll have details on it in just a little bit. For this week's show, we wanted to do the obligatory Christmas gift guide, because everyone does it. All the cool kids who have podcasts do a gift guide. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know we do a segment at the end, which we call our next track, which is the music that we are going to be listening to. So this week, basically what we're going to do is a whole show of our next tracks. We're not limiting it to music, though. We're also going to talk about some audio gear and some things to make your home music listening a little bit better. We've done a couple of shows in the past on speaker placement, specifically about subwoofers, but also about stereo speaker placement. And one thing we never got around to talking about was speaker stands. And Kirk and I both use speaker stands, but we use different kinds. Kirk, tell us about yours. I use isoacoustic speaker stands. These are very simple stands. You can think of them as four metal posts with something on the top and something on the bottom to keep them in position. And on the top and the bottom, they have rubber feet. So they dampen the sound that goes into the what the stands are on and the sound that's coming from the speaker on top of them. I'll have a link in the show notes to a review I, I wrote on my website a year or so ago. Uh, you'll see the pictures and you'll understand a little bit better. The ones I have, you get two sets of the metal posts, so you can get two different sizes. I believe it's about four and eight inches, roughly, the, the different posts. And I have them at the higher ones. And we've talked about speaker placement in the past, that you want the tweeters about the height of your ears. And these, with my speakers on my desk, the tweeters are just at the right height. So the main reason to use speaker stands like this is to isolate the sound from the desk. If the speakers were flat on the desk, they would there would be a rumble from the bass sound. And again, to get the tweeters at the right height. Now, there's another way you can do this, and you can use wedges of acoustic foam to angle the speakers. Doug? Right. That's what I use. Um, some of them are the brand Aurelex, and I originally got them to use with the subwoofer in our for lack of a better expression, home entertainment center. The thing about subwoofers is that they can get boomy. So these foam wedges isolate the subwoofer from the floor by like an inch or two. They raise them up. And uh, I was so pleased I bought a bunch more for my Bose 201 bookshelf speakers that I use here in my office. Now, they come with a variety of angled wedge pieces. It's kind of like getting a kit of building blocks. So you can create a flat or angled stand of varying degrees. It's, it really works out well because I like to hear the speaker not the sound that may be augmented by what the speaker is sitting on or sitting in. For instance, if you've got your bookshelf speakers in a literal bookshelf, the books will help to isolate the sound. But if your bookshelf speakers are just sitting there, um, they really should be isolated from the surface that they're sitting on. And uh, these, these foam wedges do a, a fantastic job. It's not uncommon to use studio monitors with this sort of wedge-shaped thing. The, the problem I find is that if the speakers are at desk level, even if they're angled up, it's too easy for things to get in the way in front of them. So my iMac is in front of me. My MacBook is to the left on a stand. And if my speakers were at the desk level, even pointing up, the, the, a lot of the sound would go through the MacBook stand and 
it's not that big a deal, but it would make a slight imbalance. The way I have them set up, they're up in the air and there's nothing at all in front of them. And actually, it's a lot better for when I sit back at the other end of my office in my comfy chair and listen. Then the the space is clear between the speakers and, and where I sit. Do you isolate the subwoofer? Oh, wait a minute. I don't remember now. Do you... Are you using a subwoofer now? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, but it's on the floor behind my desk since it doesn't need to be in a specific location. And the floor is carpeted. So that provides the insulation I need for the subwoofer. And the subwoofer has little rubber feet anyway to isolate it from the floor. Right. It's, you can get those little feet. I, I use actually little rubber feet when I can on speakers. I have speakers in the kitchen sitting on top of the refrigerator. And to isolate the speakers from the top of the refrigerator. I just bought these little rubber feet and put them on the bottom just to keep it separated. Because again, you don't want that you don't want the you don't want the rumble of the speaker to have the speaker move and you also don't want the uh the sound distorted by the uh top of the refrigerator being used as a speaker baffle. Yep. So how about some music? We were discussing before the show our our lists that we'd made up of things to recommend, and we found that there are two items that we both had on our list. So the first of those two is the recently released box set, The Rolling Stones in Mono. Now, I would almost say that this is just a no-brainer. You know, these early Rolling Stones albums up until, what is it, Baker's Banquet? It's 15 discs in mono back in the days when... You know, it starts with those early Stones albums that were mostly covers of, of blues songs where they really, in many ways, established the sound of electric rock and roll blues, if that makes sense. You know, I'm just looking at the, the tracks on the first few albums, Not Fade Away, Around and Around, Good Times, Bad Times, Suzy Q, all sorts of these great cover songs that they did. I, I think it was actually the first five albums that were covers or the first four. Yeah, I think they just wanted to cover Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters songs. I don't think they even thought about writing their own songs until later. Andrew Lou Goldham probably convinced them they could write their own songs like the Beatles were doing. Um, you know, the original recordings were in mono, of course, because most people didn't have stereos, and stereo FM radio wouldn't be popular until the late 60s. So stereo was kind of the afterthought here. But I'm curious to know, is is there a shocking difference in fidelity between the mono recordings and the stereo versions, which I know a lot better? Well, I've not explored it here, but I know that when the Dylan mono set of CDs was released, what is it, about five years ago, a number of obsessive Dylanologists went through it and found that in a handful of cases, I don't remember if it was six or eight or a dozen, the mono recordings had different takes than the stereo recordings did. You're not going to find a full album where the takes are different. I really, really like the, the Dylan mono albums. I like the way the mixes are. And just one song in particular that stands out for me is Desolation Row, where you've got this sort of acoustic guitar solo riffing along throughout, and it's on the right channel. And it's very present. It's relatively loud, so it sounds like it's in the front. And in the mono version, you've got the same solo, but it sounds like it's behind Dylan's voice, and it sounds more like an echo rather than something that's on the same plane as, as his voice is. And I think it's much more successful in the mono recording. I know as far as the Beatles go, I never heard the mono recordings until much later. I was used to the stereo recordings, and I was really surprised at how great the mono recording sounded. Yeah. I'm not even sure how they went about processing um, the mono recordings into stereo. I think they were doing this, the very first Beatles albums, were, were they doing on three-track tapes? Probably so, yeah. And that they were mixing them down yeah. from time to time. 
the story is basically that they would spend weeks on the mono mix and then they would spend a day on the stereo mix and it wasn't always George Martin who did the stereo mix and the stereo mix was an afterthought as you said people didn't have stereos and you get all these you know what's the term panning effects where you've got the guitars on the right and the voice on the left or you know these really weird things that that sound uh, that shock us now when we listen to them in stereo and in mono i i find you got much more of a balance it's much more creatively crafted than the stereo mixes it seems like sometimes they just made a stereo mix just to say woo look stereo it's like left to right it goes it flies you can have a sound go from the left to the right they they were discovering it so yeah they weren't really sure how to make it sound good, whereas now we know that the way to make it sound good is to just make it sound like it's in the room rather than to have all these effects. We need to do a show on mono recordings one of these days. I've got to listen to more mono recordings because I'm still somewhat jaded thinking that mono is inferior to stereo, and I, it's tough to overcome that. No, I, I don't think so, and I'll link in the show notes to an article I wrote a few years ago. The three box sets in particular that converted me were the Dylan, the Beatles, and the Miles Davis, the early Miles Davis albums in mono, and that made me realize just how good these mono recordings can be. Anyway, The Stones is 15 CDs. Many of the discs are like 30 minutes long, so it could have been half as many discs, but I think it's still worth listening to. You might not need to buy it. You might want to just stream it on Apple Music or whatever, but uh, it, it's some pretty classic material. You know, in general, I'm not always wild about box sets. It just seems like an excuse to repackage old products sometimes, and a lot of box sets I might be interested I already have as uh, the individual albums, or they don't really contain anything of interest unreleased photos and new appraisals, uh, that kind of stuff doesn't interest me. But uh, not all box sets are like that, of course. And, and this is one that I would have asked Santa for. It's NRBQ, and it's called High Noon, a 50-year retrospective. Now, if you don't know, NRBQ is a band. And during the 70s and 80s, they'd show up. I, it seems to me that every time I turned around, NRBQ was playing at some bar or club in Rhode Island where I grew up and went to college. They were very popular in the Northeast. And you'd hear a few of their songs on the radio from time to time. They um, they do this rockabilly swing, blues, jazz, rock. It's They're really hard to pin down, but they're always a lot of fun live. And this box set, High Noon, doesn't have all their albums, but it does have some really good ones and some unreleased live stuff. And it, it really looks like a great, well-thought-out set of material. And like I said, I think this is one of the better box sets released this year. It's NRBQ High Noon, a 50-year retrospective. And what does NRBQ stand for? NRBQ stands for New Rhythm and Blues Quartet. And it's so the band not to ever refer to themselves as the New Rhythm and Blues Quartet. It's New Rhythm it, and Blues Quartet has that sort of pretentiousness that you get in jazz ensembles who call themselves, you know, the, the, the John Doe Project or something like that. I had, we were talking before the show, I knew the name NRBQ, but I had absolutely no idea of their music. So this is an interesting find. Let's take a break here and we'll continue our holiday gift edition of the Next Track podcast in just a minute. Right now, I want to ask you about your data storage situation. Are you finding you can't fit everything on just one drive? Or are you living in Spaghetti City with cables and power blocks and mismatching external drives cluttering things up? Would you like a simple and safe alternative to that? I recommend getting a Drobo. Drobo is a storage system that, first and foremost, keeps your data safe forever. Drobo uses a patented system called Beyond RAID that makes it easy to manage, protect, and expand your data storage. A Drobo is great to store your important family pictures and videos, your media collection. Hey, you're the family IT guy, right? Hook everyone up to your Drobo and their stuff stays safe forever. 
But here's an offer that won't last forever. From now until December 31st, our Next Track listeners can save 20% on the purchase of a Drobo 5D, Drobo 5DT, Drobo 5N, or any 8 or 12 drive system at drobostore.com using the code TNT20. That could be a savings of up to $800 depending on the purchase. Save 20% through the end of the year using the discount code TNT20 at drobostore.com. Drobo, simple to use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. My next selection is a box set of some recordings of Beethoven's piano sonatas by Andrus Schiff on ECM. Now he recorded these, I believe it was about 10 years ago. They were recorded live in London. There are eight volumes, two of them are double CDs, and the box set includes a disc of encores, so one of the encores from each of the 11 concerts that he gave. There's also a very thick booklet, and I believe that the contents come from a series of podcasts that you can find online that he recorded around the time he was doing this cycle, explaining and describing each of the, the Beethoven piano sonatas. I like Schiff quite a bit. I like his Bach. I like his Schubert. I think he's an extraordinary pianist. I did buy some of these original recordings back in the day when I had eMusic and, you know, the low-quality stuff that eMusic was selling, the low-quality MP3s, and I'm very tempted to buy this set. But it's like the idea of paying almost full price for a CD now. I mean, this is a box set that I believe it's about 80 bucks for 11 CDs in the States, which wouldn't have sounded like a lot five years ago, but now when you look at the price of classical box sets, it does sound like a lot, and that's made me hesitate. It is on ECM, which I think is a great label. Just as an aside, ECM is one of those labels that still doesn't do streaming. I would probably pay five bucks a month just to stream ECM's catalog, their jazz catalog and their classical catalog. I mean, they've got a really unique roster of artists. We have yet to do a show on DACs, on digital audio converters, but I use a device that isn't quite a, a full DAC, but I think that a lot of people who have Macs may be interested in it. It's a $30 item. It's, it's the Behringer UCA202 audio interface. It plugs into a USB port on the back of your Mac, and then it gives you RCA input and output connections, as well as an optical output and a headphone monitor. And it's great if you want to bring in uh, some um, some audio accessory like a, a boombox or a turntable or a cassette deck, and you want to get that audio into your computer. But it's also great for output. For years, I was using the audio headphone jack and plugging it into a receiver. And this $30 item improves the sound, I suspect because it, it gets the audio right over the USB bus. And it's a, it's a little more, it's a little more digital. Um, but then it converts it into an analog signal that you can use RCA jacks with. So that's how I listen to uh, stuff from my computer and from my laptop. I have two of these that both plug into a receiver and uh, it's it's really handy and it it sounds much better than using the uh, the audio output the regular analog audio output from the Mac. So it's the Behringer UCA202 audio interface. You can probably find it for about $30 on Amazon and lots of other places, lots of other music uh, places will have it as well. Okay, so this is my big pick, my expensive pick. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this as my next track a month or so ago, but I want to bring it back here because it is a Christmas gift thing. It's the Mozart 225 box set. It's 200 CDs. It's everything Mozart composed, including variants, unfinished works, recently discovered fragments and things. 
About 30 of the CDs are alternate performances. So you get some people playing original instruments and some people playing modern instruments. It's a wealth of material that, you know, as a classical music fan, you, you can just listen to this like forever. Now, it's interesting. On the day that we're recording, Universal Music, the label who has published this, Universal owns Deutsche Grammophon, Philips, Decca, and many other labels. And, and they've combined all those plus labels they don't own in this box set. So Universal released a press release today. And this press release, and I'll have a link in the show notes to an article I wrote on my website, is titled, Mozart 225 box set becomes biggest physical release of 2016, selling 1.25 million CDs in five weeks. Uh, that's pretty impressive when you think, wow, one and a quarter million, although it's not one and a quarter million box sets. It's one and a quarter million CDs. There's 200 CDs that comes to 6,250. It's a limited edition of 15,000. In the month or so, I believe it came out late October, in the month or so that it's been out, they've only sold 40% of that, which means that they're desperately trying to hawk it to get people to buy it for Christmas because any real classical collector who was interested in this would have bought it by now. And they don't want to have this stock on their hands and they don't want to have to discount something that's a limited edition. Nevertheless, 400 bucks for 200 CDs, great price. I'd say about half of the stuff isn't worth listening to twice. You know, a lot of early Mozart isn't great, but you've got all the operas, you've got all the piano sonatas and piano concertos and string quartets and, and all that good stuff. Now, my extra added bonus item is something that was released at the same time. It's the Mozart 225 Complete Operas set, which is all of Mozart's operas on DVD. This is not a limited edition. Unfortunately, it's DVD and not Blu-ray. I did buy this. I haven't watched any yet. The recordings are all from Salzburg. I'm not sure if they're excellent productions or mediocre productions. The reviews seem to be quite mixed. But if you want to be a Mozart completist, you can get the discs, you can get the DVDs, and you'll have everything. A cultural landslide to fill your home entertainment center. I mentioned earlier how some box sets are like an excuse for dumping seemingly interesting content. And in doing research for this episode, I looked at a lot of box sets that came out this year. And what I ran across is Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger Super Deluxe. Now, first of all, I like Soundgarden, and I like the album Bad Motorfinger. I even like Super Deluxe editions of things. But I'm calling this one out because the original album, Bad Motorfinger, is a good album, okay? It's not Thriller. It's not Sgt. Pepper or something for the ages. But it's, it's a good, solid album, you know, very good 90s album. Now, the super deluxe version is four CDs, two concert DVDs, and a Blu-ray audio disc with music videos and high-res audio stuff and things like that. The original album was 12 songs. Now, this collection has 109 tracks, including unreleased studio outtakes that have been remastered. Now, if you're a Soundgarden fanatic, I'm sure this is appealing on some level, and I can appreciate that. And like I said, it's, it's a good record originally. But, geez, this is just, I think it's just too much. There. Okay, so. And there endeth the rant. I started with music and brought in some DVDs with the Mozart operas. And now it's time for what, what I think is one of the most important releases of the year. It's the Blu-ray of the recent revival of Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. Now, I can hear some of you out there saying, but it's not an opera. Well, it's not an opera. It's a music performance piece with some voices and stuff. I first discovered Einstein in the Beach 
Sometime in the late 70s on that Tomato Records recording, I believe it was on three vinyl albums, and it was drastically curtailed from the four and a half hour original length of the of the music. And then I was fortunate enough to see it live at the Brooklyn Academy of Music when it, there was a revival in 1984. It's just a fascinating piece. It's, you know, it's Philip Glass. So you either like minimalism or you don't. It's hard to describe how fascinating it is. And I was sitting there riveted for four and a half hours. I did not get up. And they made it very clear that if you needed to get up to go to the toilet, that you could. And it was no problem, you know, go in and out during it. But I was riveted. And I saw the film that's been released on Blu-ray online last year. It was available to stream from a French TV station, I think. It's very well done. It's very clear, very clean. The music is very well done. I, I really think this is one of the most important works of the 20th century in the fact that it, in, in its scope, in its breadth, and the fact that it brought minimalist music into the sort of mainstream. Remember, this was performed at the Metropolitan Opera House. And of course, Philip Glass famously went back to driving a taxi after the performances were over. So I believe it's like 30 bucks on Amazon. I think it's, you know, it's not cheap for a Blu-ray, but you just, you have to buy that. Really, if there's one thing on this list that I think is essential, um, I think it's that. I have a wire obsession. I do not like wires on my desk. I don't like wires, period. I don't like looking outside of my house and seeing telephone poles with wires hanging over it. I'm totally anti-wire. And I go wireless when I can, but let's face it, there's really no avoiding having wires. So I I've done what I can possibly, I, I've done everything I could possibly do to minimize the appearance of wires in my house. And I'd like to recommend a couple of things that will help you with your wire situation. The first thing I do is I've, uh, I've got these under table cable carriers uh, attached to the, the underside of my desk so that all the wires that come off of my desk or need to get anywhere actually are run along this little wire highway I have under my desk. I also have a- Can you say under table cable carrier five times fast? I believe that I can. Uh, I also have two sets of very large power strips also attached underneath the desk so that even the electrical cables are wrapped and, and connect to the underside of the desk so that you don't see wires hanging off of the, of the desk. When wires do have to come into that bus, come into that, that gang of wires, they usually come up a leg of the table so that there's minimal, I don't see wires hanging off the edge of the table at all. I hate that. So that's one thing you can do, get some under table cable carriers. The other thing that got my goat is that headphones, headphone plugs, you usually plug them in horizontally. That is if you, if you come up to your receiver and you plug a headphone into it, you, the jack fits nice and then the wire just sags to the floor. And every time you do that, you're putting stress on the wire and the plug and you're just, you're not doing the wire any good. So. I've got these angle plugs, these stereo angle plugs that I have on the end of all of my headphones. So when I plug them in, the wire hangs straight down rather than, rather than bending. And also, I use them on guitar cables as well when I, plug them into a, when I plug a guitar into a guitar amp. The same problem happens. You have the plug sticking out and then eventually bending and putting stress on the plug. So these angle plugs really help to keep my wires intact. And the third thing I can't recommend enough are Velcro strip cable ties. <laughs> Get colored Velcro strip cable ties, gang everything together, put them on your under table cable carriers, uh, and you'll be fine. I mean, 
I can't move any equipment because everything is wired in place, but it's great because I don't see unsightly wires anywhere. So if I could recommend anything, it'd be that. Yeah, that was what I was going to say, that I've got a bunch of Velcro cable ties, but I black, only black, no other color for cable ties. Black is fine. You can get them, you can get them, in, you can get them in rolls. You can get these Velcro strips in rolls. I have gray and black. Yeah, they're great. Oh. Yeah, and they wrap... They wrap like uh, electrical tape. They're they're almost like they're that thin, so that they wrap really. Oh, you well. mean they're double faced? Yeah. Oh, that's good. the The problem is that when you do want to move something, you have to unroll everything to get at it, so that makes it a little bit complicated. But I I when I when I moved into this new house six months ago, one thing I did is I rationalized a lot of my wiring under my desk and around my desk, and I cable tied everything, so I don't have things hanging loose. I don't have the under-table cable carriers like you do, but I do have some cables running under that are Velcroed to the, the, the metal bar that holds my two desk ends together, if that makes any sense. I, I like the angle plug thing, so sometimes I stick headphones into the back of my iMac, and there's an awful lot of stress on that bit around the, the plug there. But what do you do? Do you put the angle, do you put the regular headphone plugs into the angled plug adapters or do you cut off the original plugs and you rewire them no i use the adapters with the original plug because they're i mean yeah you can't it doesn't work in every situation the other yeah. thing too is um they make angle plugs not just for for quarter inch stuff but for xlrs for rcas you can i mean if you go to a specialty electronics place you can find these angle plugs in all different shapes and sizes i also use them in usb and firewire uh adapters as well when I when I have a laptop that can't fit into a uh, into a decent space, I just use angled uh, USB and angled uh, FireWire for those computers that have FireWire. Okay, so the second item that we both have on our list is the Last Waltz 40th Anniversary Edition, which comes in four CDs with a Blu-ray disc of the film. There are several other editions, including a collector's edition with a second Blu-ray a music-only edition, a two-CD music-only edition. They've got pretty much every version possible. The Last Waltz is one of those things that I kind of grew up on. I mean, when that movie came out, it was around the time that I was going to midnight movies at a, a, a movie theater in Forest Hills in Queens. And we would go, and every week there would be either a concert film, something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or Night of the Living Dead or something like that. And these were parties, Saturday at midnight. Um, these were just big parties. Many mind-altering substances were consumed in those movie theaters back in the days when you could do that sort of thing. And this was one that we saw over and over. And what, what's interesting is the, the band was not a, a band on my radar until that movie came out. And this movie actually gave them more stature than what they had before. This um, movie is, uh, this is considered probably the best concert movie ever made. A lot of people would argue that the, it, it truly is the best concert movie ever made. In fact, a lot of concert movies made since look a lot like it. Um, just the way that they mounted cameras and the way they used dollies and things like that. Um, it was relatively new for a concert film. Um, whenever I see Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads, I always think of The Last Waltz because it has the same sort of... Uh, closeness and uh, intimacy but still the sense that it's a, a concert performance uh but this is a great if you don't own the last walls any version of it you should have it uh but this looks like a really really good uh collection for only 50 bucks around there it's not bad it's got all the rehearsals all the live stuff um yeah i bought the four cd version 15 20 years ago when it came out with the rehearsal stuff and it's not great, but there is some extra music that's worth listening to. 
it's true that this is one of these movies that you can just watch over and over again. You might skip a song or two. You you might, you know, get a little bit tired of um, Van Morrison or, you know, the, the... Hush your mouth. Well, you know, the Joni Mitchell song and things like that. You, you like him, you don't. Neil Diamond, it's like, okay, he's Neil Diamond. But there's something about, uh, of all people, Neil Diamond actually fits in this better than you would expect. And it's a good song. And you can see that Neil Diamond really does have stage presence. And he's a hell of a singer. You know, there was this whole thing. Dylan did a lot more songs than what was recorded and, and filmed. And there was this whole problem where he almost refused to go on stage because he didn't want to be filmed. And then he finally did and he wouldn't let everything be released. And it's a shame because the Dylan stuff was probably a lot more interesting. But You yeah. didn't hear Neil Diamond complaining like that. No, no. You didn't hear Joni Mitchell or Neil Young. They were all happy to be there. But I, I think what's really interesting is that the... The scope of the different, the range of the different musicians from Dr. John to Neil Young, Muddy Waters to, to, to Bob Dylan, it really shows where music was in the 1970s in, in a way similar to the way Woodstock shows where music was at the end of the 1960s. You know, that range of music and it shows how varied the music that, that people, that, that us, that we listened to in that period was, that it could range from, you know, Muddy Waters and Dr. John to Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell. I agree. It's one of my favorite records, and uh, I just I, I don't get tired of it. I mean, okay, I skip a couple of songs every now and then, but it's, it's fun to watch and it's fun to listen to. Great record. So that's a wrap. This is our Christmas gift list. I'd just like to point out that when I was making my list, I, I tried to make it a bit broader to cover some other genres. I couldn't find any good jazz box sets that had come out this year. I couldn't find anything really in blues. I mean, there's a new Rolling Stones cover album, but that's not really a Christmas present. That's, you know, and I would have liked to have had some more genres, but hey, this is what we have this year. So have a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. We'd like to thank Drobo for sponsoring this week's episode and for inviting Kirk and I to their Using iTunes and Drobo webinar, where we answered questions and chatted about Guess what? iTunes and Drobo and everything in between. If you didn't participate, you can still check it out on Drobo's YouTube channel. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. And remember, from now until December 31st, Next Track listeners can save 20% on the purchase of select Drobo products at drobostore.com using the code TNT20. That's TNT20. You could save from $100 to $800 depending on your purchase. Save 20%. Now through the end of the year, using the discount code TNT20 at drobostore.com. Drobo, simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>